All right, with that, we're going to jump into the message today. We're in the middle of our series entitled Blueprint, where we're discussing the foundational doctrines and beliefs that can help our life to flourish. As we have said to set up this message series every single week, a lot of people are randomly going through life, hitting the buttons, hoping that everything works out in the end. But what we see when we look at the scripture is that God has given us the blueprint for life. There are some fundamental beliefs that when we put our faith in and we apply to life, will change the outcome of our life. It will not be random, but it will actually be ordered by God, and we will see the fruit of obedience flourish inside of our life. Now, over the last two weeks, we have discussed salvation and the return of Christ. This week, we're going to start turning our attention to the ordinances of the church and specifically communion. Now, when we say the ordinance of the church or the sacraments of the church, what are we talking about? An ordinance is a outward visible sign of an inward spiritual reality. I want you to think about that. Let that soak in a little bit. An ordinance or a sacrament is an outward visible sign of an inward spiritual reality. When you look at scripture, Jesus instituted two ordinances for the church, baptism and communion, and both of these events are outward visible signs of the internal spiritual reality that Christ has done in our hearts. Now, it's important to make a distinction here, depending on your church background or where you came from, different denominational views. If you have a high church background or a Catholic type background, in those lines of Christendom, there is a belief that Christ instills his grace upon the recipients of baptism or communion. At our church, we don't believe that there is extra grace given for the ordinances. Rather, we believe that we are testifying and confessing to the internal work that Christ has already done inside of our life. And so we're going to be breaking down these two different ordinances. This week, we're going to be looking at communion specifically. Now, perhaps you have sat in church and you have participated in a communion service. Depending on the church or the denomination that you were in, you deserved, you, you saw communion served a few different ways, but there were some fundamental understandings and some similarities between all of that. There were some bread and some crackers that represented the body of Christ, and there was some juice or wine that represented the blood of Jesus, and people ate and drank this bread and juice in honor of the Lord's death. Now, that's a very simplistic uh, explanation of what communion is, and so we're going to dive into the details of that because when we see communion or a baptism, a lot of us have questions, and obviously there's a lot of opinions when it comes to communion. And so we need to remember that Jesus was the one that instituted this ordinance, and we are interpreting and trying to apply the teaching that Jesus gave to us. Some people see communion and they see it required for salvation. Other people on the far end of the spectrum would look and see this just as a, a religious uh, experience that we take where we eat terrible tasting crackers and drink some juice. Right? There's those two extremes where if we don't do this, you're not saved, and we, this is something we do. It's just kind of a nice gesture, and the crackers taste pretty terrible, and the juice is not very good. Those are two extremes of a very complex issue. So we're going to look at this and hopefully understand what Jesus was instituting. Now, I need to warn you that the answer for what is communion about is a little bit complex, 
because sin itself is complex and salvation is complex. The other day we took, uh, Charity and I went fishing and Charity was over there on some docks by herself. I was somewhere else and, and we're fishing, not catching anything. If you, you've heard me talk a lot about our fishing and you'll notice a trend. We fish a lot, catch very little, right? Yesterday I caught this tiniest little perch. I mean, it was the saddest looking little thing. The fish literally laughed at me when he came out of the water. He's like, you caught me, you are worthless. Anyway, so we're, we're doing some fishing and Charity walks over and her pole is in two pieces and, and all of the fishing line somehow has come out of the reel and has just bird nested right there. And she's like, I don't know what happened. I, I don't know what caused this conundrum that she found herself in. But what I know is when I saw that, I said, there is no saving this. We are going to have to cut all this off and start over. She had a very complex problem with no simple solution. Here's the reality. When we sin, we made a real mess of our lives. We, we really did. And God instituted the plan of salvation, and there's some complexity to it. Now, here's the key. Receiving salvation is very simple. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you are saved. Romans 10, 9, confess with the Lord in the mouth of our heart that Christ raised him from the dead, and you will be saved, right? However, on God's end of the redemption process, there was a little bit of complication that went into this. He had to order things and he had to fix our mess. And when he did, there were some details that when we understand those details, it makes such a difference inside of our lives. The other thing we have to be aware of heading into the communion message is that it seems complicated because we're looking at communion from a completely different culture and time in history. In history, when scripture was written, we have from the beginning all the way to the time of Christ, and so when Jesus is there and he's taking the Last Supper with his disciples, the disciples, because they understood that history, because they were Jews and they were familiar with the redemption process, it made a lot of sense to them. For us, since we don't grow up in that culture and we're not always familiar with the background, some of the things that Christ said or that he does doesn't make quite as much sense to us. And we underestimate the importance of them because we're just not familiar with it. So as we break it down, I want to show you how a simple meal has some complex implications to our life and how it is the answer and it changes so many things that we face as individuals and even as we face as a people. Now, make no mistake about it, taking communion on Sunday morning will absolutely impact your Monday morning. And I want to read to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to start reading in verse number 17. Communion shows us so much. It teaches us the depths of God's love. Communion teaches us God's provision. And communion teaches us God's salvation plan for us. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, starting verse number 17. Here's what the scripture says. But in the following instructions... I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the, Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why some of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we are judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we judge by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, as we see from this passage, Paul is teaching us to understand communion. And if we were to give a big idea to this message, here is the big idea. When you take communion, you are proclaiming the Lord's death and you are participating in the Lord's death. By proclaiming and participating in the Lord's death, you also proclaim and participate in the new life with Christ. I want to say that again. By proclaiming and participating in the Lord's death, you also proclaim and participate in the new life with Christ. This morning, I want to walk through three questions regarding communion. And what we're going to discover in these questions are the answers that how communion points to the new life in Christ. It's very important to understand that we're not going through a religious exercise for the sake of an exercise. What we're doing is we're taking an ordinance that Jesus himself instituted so that we could see the new life that we're supposed to have in him. And in this new life, there is hope and there is provision and there's grace and there's freedom and there's salvation and there's love and there's fulfillment. This new life has everything that we desire deep down inside. Everything that we long for is found in the new life that Jesus Christ is offering to us. And what communion is doing is it's pointing to the pathway for that new life. So the first question I want to answer is this. What is the significance of communion? And I want to read another verse to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. So the previous chapter that we just read, verses 16 and 17 say this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. The significance of communion is not just an act of receiving, but it is one of instituting us into the body of Christ. It's one that makes us one together because it's one thing that all believers have done all the way back to Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a unifying aspect to the body of Christ. It's something that we can share with, with our brothers and sisters here in Jay and across America and all the way back to the first disciples himself. Jesus had a purpose in this meal. Notice the words associated 
with the communion through these two passages. Communion is remembering the Lord's death. Communion is proclaiming the Lord's death, and communion is participating in the Lord's death. Those are three words that are vital to see inside of this passage because it's showing us the fullness of what communion is all about. Jesus isn't calling us to commemorate his birth, his life, or his miracles, but rather he instituted an ordinance to commemorate his death. So significant. Why would he do that? We see that in his death is ultimately the pathway to the new light. Within the action of instituting communion, Jesus spoke some very significant and specific words. Jesus is making it perfectly clear that what he was establishing when he gave the ordinance of communion was that he was establishing a new covenant with humanity. The setting of the first communion meal is very important. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed. It was one of his last actions before he went to the cross for the sins of humanity. He was in his last hours. He was facing his death, and he was in a room with his disciples, and he's celebrating the Passover meal with them. And in the middle of this meal, Jesus does something radical. He takes the bread and he says, this is my body that's given for you. And then he pours some wine and he says, drink this wine as a new covenant in my blood. Now, what is a covenant? If Jesus is instituting a covenant and you and I want to participate in it, it'd probably be important to understand what a covenant is. And it is a contract from God to man. In the original words, it's talking about the disposition the, towards us from God. It's about how one party starts to relate towards another. What Jesus is saying is, in this moment, God's disposition towards humanity is changing, and we are going to be connected with God, and how we connect with God is going to change. The contractual obligations are about to change. He's saying it's about to get a whole lot better. If you read the Old Testament law, you see that there was, a lot of, there was a lot of laws. There was a lot of things that they had to follow in order to be in the will of God. And what Jesus was saying is the old sacrificial system is about to go away and the new contract is about to be written in my blood. See, since the fall of humanity, since we sinned and we fell from the glory of God, everyone has sinned. Adam and Eve have sinned. Abraham has sinned. David has sinned. You've sinned, I've sinned, even charity has sinned, believe it or not, right? We have all sinned. Humanity has rejected God time and time again, but God in his plan of salvation was going to rescue humanity by sending his son to be the savior for all mankind. And through his blood, there was a better way, a new way of connecting to God, and it had been prophesied for hundreds of years. Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament before Christ, in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, say this. This is God speaking. Behold, declare the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It is not like a covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
So the night that Jesus is instituting communion, he's saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he's, he's referencing what Jeremiah was pointing to. And he says, now is the time when you can know me and I'm going to know you. Why? Because the Father is about to forgive your iniquity and remember your sin no more. How great of a promise is that from God? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We remember our sins and our trespasses and our iniquity so much more than the Father does. His disposition towards us has changed. His covenantal contract was changing and being fulfilled through Christ. Now what he's saying is you and I can be in relation with the Father. Our bodies can be healed. Our minds can have peace. We can be in the presence of God. We can have hope for the future. We can have provision for our needs. We can have the hope of heaven. And all those things are fulfilled in the contract, in the covenant that Jesus was establishing with his disciples. This new promise, though, was going to come at a cost, and it was his blood. And the Lord is making it perfectly clear that this covenant had to be ratified by his death. He had to deal with our sins. The significance of this whole entire conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples is overwhelming. Now, we call this the Last Supper. In fact, he called it the Lord's Supper. It's, we, we reference this as the Last Supper, and we say that because Jesus was having his last meal with his disciples. Now, there's many different words and different things that we've called this event, depending upon your denominational background that you may or may not have. Some call it communion. The word communion emphasizes communion with Jesus and remembering the work that he did. Some call it the Lord's table. The Lord's table emphasizes that when we're following Jesus and we're doing what he did the night before he was betrayed. Some call it the Eucharist because that word means give thanks and it's what Jesus we do. We're giving thanks and there's thanksgiving in our hearts towards the work of Jesus in our life. But the bigger issue than what we call it is what it means. And communion is pointing to the mechanics of how salvation happened. It was only through the body and only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we are saved and we are set free. And it's a reminder of the dramatic sacrifice that Jesus had to pay so that you and I could be forgiven and set free. The significance is so rich. Communion calls us to Put our sins to death and leave the old way of life behind. This passage is calling us to examine our hearts before we partake. How can we have fellowship with our Savior when we're still living in the very thing that He's trying to save us from? Communion shows us the unity of God's people at work in Jesus. He, Paul gets after him and says, you guys, are, there's division among you, and you're trying to take the bread together. And the very thing that unifies you to the church for all of time you're allowing yourselves to be divided. That's not good. Communion is a reminder of the grace, the unmerited favor of God enabled in our life. So as you can see, communion is extremely important and significant for Christians. And we started with this question, what's the significance of communion? And communion is so significant because it's the proclamation of the Lord's death, it's participation in the Lord's death, and it's remembering the Lord's death. All of those things are so important to us. Now it leads to a second question. What's the big deal with eating in the Bible? You notice that there's so much eating in the Bible. I don't have a problem with that, but it's kind of striking to me. You ever read through the Bible every time they turn around? They eat all the time. How many of it makes you feel better, right? Go home, eat a cookie. It's biblical. <laughs> you know, we can. Cherry made cookies. 
We had some we had some young people come up. We had a great time this weekend. I had one of my old youth from that we've known him since he's like this tall. He's getting married. It's exciting. That's the cool part of our life at this point. A lot of these kids that we've watched grow up, they're now getting married, having their own children. And so Charity and I had the honor and the privilege of doing their premarital counseling this weekend. And so they came up and stayed with us, and we had a good time with them. Anyways, he tells me right before he comes, he says, hey, just so you know, we're vegans now. Now, <laughs> hold on, boy. Okay, hold on. This kid is a hunter. I mean, he, he's not a hunter. He's a killer. I mean, he kills everything. He's the luckiest kid I've ever seen. Every time he goes out, he kills something. And I said, you're a vegan? He said, don't worry. I'm still going to go hunting. I'm just not going to eat it. I'm like, what's wrong with you? That's... Anyway, so Charity makes all these cookies, like two dozen cookies. And now they're trying to be healthy. So guess who gets to eat all the cookies? I do. We're going to call it, we're just going to call it being biblical, though, at our house. What's the deal with all the eating in the Bible? Well, when you start looking at the significance of communion and the new covenant happened around a meal. Now, there are several significant meals in Scripture that point and teach us about different aspects of the redemption plan for our lives. And I, wanna, I wish I could dive into all the nuances with you. I really don't have time. It'd be fun for me, maybe not for you, but it'd be fun for me. But I want to highlight these meals real fast because it teaches us something. The first meal that we see in the Bible is actually the forbidden meal. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and it started the need for the redemption process to be instituted. The second significant meal we see in the Bible is the Passover. If you're not familiar with this, I encourage you to go home, read Exodus 12. But basically, the long and short of it is, this is the meal that the Israelites who were in slavery ate the night that they were free. And it shows to the work of Jesus how he's the only one that could free us from the slavery of sin. The third significant meal is the Last Supper. Jesus is there with his disciples. They are celebrating the Passover meal. And he institutes this communion that we have been talking about. He's teaching us the significance of his sacrifice. The fourth significant meal in Scripture is the meal of communion that you and I take. We take this communion uh, not as a full meal like Jesus did, but we take it as an opportunity to proclaim and participate and remember the Lord's death. It's the words of the Lord that night that we remember. Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it out to his believers. And that's the bread that we now take. And it represents Jesus's body. And remember that Christ is with us and that he gave his body for us. And we never have to question if Jesus is with us or not because he gave us his body and, and he gave us his Holy Spirit inside of us. The wine represents his blood that ran down the cross. And so when we take communion, we're remembering that's without the blood of Jesus, that we have no hope and that we are saved through his blood. Now I need to pause real quick and I want to answer a question that perhaps you have. Does the bread and the wine or does the juice and the cracker become the literal body and blood of Jesus. And this is where some different denominational backgrounds believe. I don't believe so. I believe that Jesus was speaking metaphorically in this moment. Why? Because it was not uncommon for Jesus to speak metaphorically. Jesus said when he gave communion, I, this is my body, take it and eat it. This is my blood, take it and drink it. But he spoke metaphorically a lot. He said, I'm a door. But we know Jesus wasn't an actual door. He was the door, but he wasn't a piece of wood standing up vertically, right? Jesus said, I'm the vine. But, you know, he was obviously a man. He wasn't a vine. He was being metaphoric. So it wasn't uncommon for Jesus to be metaphoric. The fifth and final significant meal mentioned in the Bible is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is a meal that has not happened yet. 
You should go read out of Revelations 19. And when you see that, you see it's a meal that the Lord himself is hosting for every single believer. And we sit there and we feast in heaven for the end of the age with the Father and with the Son. And it's a glorious time. Now, what's the point of all these meals? Why, why would I highlight them? Because only in the way that God can, he teaches us the beauty of salvation surrounding meals. I'm going to say this really slow, and I want you to ponder what I'm about to say. Human history started with a meal eaten without God. It's only fitting that human history would end with a meal served by God. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit without God. God saves all of us to a meal that he himself hosts. Adam and Eve ate from a living tree that brought death to humanity Jesus hung on a dead tree that brought life to all humanity, and he institutes that life with a meal. Like, what? Think about all that. You know, that's so good. I'm going to read that whole thing one more time. Human history started with a meal that we ate without God. And it's only fitting that human history would end with a meal served by God. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit without God there. And God saves all of us to a meal that he himself hosts. Adam and Eve ate from a living tree and it brought death to humanity. Jesus hung on a dead tree that brought life to all humanity and he institutes that life at a meal. When we take communion, it's more than eating a cracker and drinking some juice. It's connecting you from the beginning to the end of the redemption process of God. That's what we're proclaiming. That's what we're participating in. And that's what we are remembering. Communion connects you through history. Communion reminds you of Jesus' presence. It reminds you that Jesus was there when the Israelites were in slavery, just like he was there with the disciples and when they were there with him and he was betrayed, and just like he's there with us right now. Communion reminds us that there's hope in heaven. The Lord's Supper is a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We take communion in just a moment. It's a foreshadowing of what it's going to be like in heaven. Just as the Hebrew people celebrated the Passover, looking forward to the day of the promised land, we too take the Lord's Supper, take communion, looking forward to the day when we're going to be with Jesus. One day, Jesus is going to sit down. He's going to serve us at a meal. What a day will that be? That's two questions so far. What's the significance of communion? What's the big deal of eating with the Bible? And the answer is very simple. When you take communion, you're proclaiming Jesus' death and participating in the Lord's death. And in so doing, you're proclaiming and participating that someday you're also going to have new life in Christ. That's the significance of this. I want to close with the third and final question if Charity wants to come back. Third and final question is this. How are we to take communion? How are we to take communion? How we take communion is important. Our passage makes it very clear that this act is proclaiming and participating in the death of Jesus. And this passage is mainly written because communion had turned into a disrespectful, divisive, and drunken party. It was disrespectful. He said, you're not even in unity together. You're wanting to spend eternity in heaven together, but you can't even get along here on earth. And he said, half of you are showing up early. You're eating without everybody else. You're drinking, getting drunk. It's just chaos. 
The meal was supposed to connect us to the salvation and turn into a nightmare, and Paul was trying to correct this behavior. Now, he gives us some comfort in that because at the end he says, Lord, when the Lord is correcting you, it's because he loves you. It's better that he corrects you now and not later. Amen? So, we got to get this right. This church in Corinth was so disrespectful that some of them had even gotten sick and died from their disrespect. Don't ask me how that works. I don't know. But what I do know is serious. Here's what this teaches us, though, is going through the motions of religion is worse than not doing it at all. It's worse to dabble in something disrespectfully than not dabble in it at all. So we have to be aware of what we're doing when we're taking communion is to be respectful, is to be taken with a serious heart because we're referencing the body and the blood of Jesus. So how are we to take communion? Well, first, we are to be a believer. You cannot seek the sacred without first seeking a Savior. If you're going to participate in this, it's only because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You need to be. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I'm not a believer. You're watching online and you say, I'm not a believer. Well, as I told you in the very beginning, the salvation plan was complex. But entering that plan on our side is very simple. Confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Second thing we're to do is that communion needs to be taken with unity among the body. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. And our world is in chaos right now. And man, there's a lot of different opinions and ideas. A lot of different things that people are saying. But you know, somewhere this morning in America, there's an African-American church taking communion. There's somewhere in the world yesterday that an underground church in China took communion. There's somewhere in Europe that they just took communion. And here we are in J America, we're about to take communion. Man. There's a lot of things that probably need to be discussed by people smarter than I am when it comes to things in this world. But what I do know is that Jesus really can bring people together and heal hearts. And so the hope for our nation is unity. Let me tell you, this right here brings us together. The blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus. In Paul's day, it was the Jews and the Greeks. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for salvation. First for the Jews and then for the Gentile. Romans 1.16. Marriage supper of the Lamb says that John the Revelator saw people from every tribe, every tongue. This needs to bring us together. It needs to bring us together as a church. We're to take this in unity commandment of scripture but hopefully as we're taking communion this morning we pray say God let your body and your blood bring healing to so many in our nation third thing we're to take communion with a pure heart Paul tells us to examine ourselves we need to see if there's any unrepentant sin in our lives or anything that Christ needs to deal with in our own hearts fourth we're to take communion as worship notice you'll see that Paul said, when you come together, communion primarily, I'm not saying you can't take communion at home individually, you, you can, but what we see from Scripture is primarily communion was taken as worship. 
the body would come together to proclaim and remember what the Lord had done. Now, at some point, at this point, some would ask, is communion required for salvation? And the answer would be no. The Bible makes it very clear that faith is the requirement for salvation, but communion doesn't earn your way into heaven. But it is proclaiming. It is participating. If you have been saved, you'd want to do that. Communion is about the love of Christ and the covenant that we have with Him and the hope of eternity. Every time we take communion, we're remembering the love Jesus has for us. Every time we take communion, we're assured that He is still with us. And every time we take communion, we have the hope of tomorrow.